This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. It's very good to be here, Isaac. Uh, today, I'm going to be a more radio-style personality. and uh... oh, no. no. <laughs> so, part two of the life and times of T.K. Coleman from American Express to American Idol. <laughs> What's so funny is that like that like starts in the middle and ends in the middle. So it's not even really a fitting, you know, like American Express wasn't really the beginning and American Idol wasn't the ending, but it just works. It has a better alliteration. Well, and it also captures the reality of my life, right? It always feels like it's starting somewhere in the middle. Doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, where is this going? Where did it start? It's just, it's just perfect, man. So, um, quick note for our listeners. We're going to talk about your startup, uh, Bulaka. Do not go to Bulaka.com, please. I just did to see, I wonder what's there. If it is this, you know, site placeholder still up? Nope. It's something absolutely completely utterly different that I don't recommend anyone visit. Man, I haven't, I haven't been there in Asia, so yeah. Thanks for the thanks for the warning. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I'm sorry for whatever happened. <laughs> <laughs> you just owe me again. Um, okay, so we left off through this crazy roundabout journey from wanting to act to deciding you wanted to go into philosophy to going into financial advising to going back into no wait. Yeah, to deciding you want to go back to, to Hollywood, but then sticking around, working in the assisted living facility, going back into philosophy and academia, leaving that behind to go audition for American Idol, then doing this national seminars thing and bartending and finally getting out to Hollywood. You're you're doing the whole scene. You've got an agent. You've had you've made all your family happy because you've, your face has been on national TV on Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? All the pressure's gone. All the pressure's gone. And you've decided now you want to focus on the business side of Hollywood. You meet these guys, Tom and Mark, at a party, and or Tom, and then later he introduced you to Mark. Tell me about where were they in the process of launching this startup, Bulaka, and how did they sell you on joining them? They were in the, the very beginning of the phase. They, they were in a position where they had already had their business plan and their executive summary, and they, they were looking to, to begin the raising money part. And when I met them, they didn't have to sell me on the idea because uh, Tom and I, we were talking at, at the party the whole time. Him and I were just going on about how social media is going to change the game and you know the, the power is going to belong to those who know how to harness these tools. And we actually talked about what we're seeing now, which is we're, we're eventually going to wake up and find ourselves living in a world where, you know, you, you see people like the middle-class actor, the $60,000 a year actor making a living because Th of YouTube channels. This was channels. before people were like making a living on YouTube. You didn't really have that. I mean, you know, um, you, you didn't have like all the, uh, you had a web series where we're kind of beginning to emerge at this time, but but you didn't have this phenomenon like we have it now where there are just tons of people that are YouTube celebrities. You got people making, you know, anywhere from 60K to 100K a year. They're not famous. You wouldn't recognize them if you ran into them at Target. 
and and yet they're making their living as actors. And it's unheard of because it used to be either your George Clooney status or you're a nobody trying to get in. Yeah. And now we have all these, you know, middle class actors where people are making a good living, making the same salary as like a construction worker or a real estate sales agent or something. But so, so you saw this act- coming and and were excited to build a business around it. What was the business model? How was your, you, you created a website where you wanted all these sort of independent people to be able to collaborate. You wanted to decentralize all the process of filmmaking. What was the revenue model? So the revenue model at this time was purely ad-based. And this was the same time when we started at this, MySpace was still hot. You know, uh, <laughs> MySpace, remember. right. And, and we didn't have the indications that we now have that that MySpace was going down. This was before Facebook began to really take its dent into them. And, and, and the whole idea of having an awesome site that people want to come to and spend a lot of time on because it, you know, you obviously create value for them by allowing them to collaborate and providing those tools and, and then, um, and then generating, you know, selling ad space. So our, our, our model was primarily ad revenue based and that that's how we pitched it. Yeah. So you were immediately excited about this idea. They had a business plan and it was, uh, and this was back before pitch decks replaced business plans as the, uh, <laughs> as the standard, uh, fundraising collateral. Well, 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 we had an executive summary that was pretty much kind of like a pitch deck, you know, but Bang. maybe a little bit too so long. So much yeah. more of a boring, non-trendy title, you know, things yeah. have changed, yeah. things have changed. Absolutely. No so, um, you guys, what was your, what were you, how much money were you trying to raise? And, and first of all, you had no experience in startups and no tech experience. And I don't think. I don't think any of the Mark and Tom were not tech guys either, but this was like None. a web-based built um, business. So was the idea, you guys have the Hollywood connections and the understanding of the entertainment industry. I know both Tom and Mark had some background there and you've got this vision. You need to raise the money so you can hire developers to build the project for you and get, you know, get things going, get traction. Was that the basic idea? That was the idea. Between the three of us, we had the the creative direction, the business development, uh, the visionary skills, and and we were going to use some of the money that we raised to to bring in people. And 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 at the earliest stages, we would, uh, you know, when we didn't have any money at all, we were just basically working with, you know, uh, development geeks that we would find at like UCLA or USC. Uh, but they were impossible. It was impossible to get these kids to work because they would love the vision and buy into it, but you just couldn't rely on them consistently. So we needed to raise the money and we and we we set out to raise 10 million dollars actually. And really? and what oh, I don't remember it being that much. I remember you doing a lot of friends and family sort of investments getting people with, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100k here and there, but I didn't I didn't remember that the total goal was was 10 million. That's a pretty big uh big chunk to go after. It was it was a pretty big chunk to go after and and we failed quite miserably at it and 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 so we we uh, humbled those goals a bit and we began to focus on friends and family and we we came out of the gate pretty strong and and we raised a quarter of a million and and you know we, we were pretty excited about that and we felt like all right like we have enough to be able to at least get started and raise as we go and the more that we prove this concept the more that we show evidence of of a tangible value you know then we'll be able to have an easier time raising that money but this also coincided I don't want to violate your rule of never saying a politician's name, so I'll talk around it. But <laughs> this coincided with 
the emergence of the president who was president prior to the current president. Uh, <laughs> when people listen to this 10 years from now, they're going to be like, what in the world? Who are they isn't talking? That, isn't that like a hard and fast rule? Just I try to when I'm speaking about like writing, especially if I'm going to talk about something that involves a politician, I don't want to give them any additional attention. So I usually just refer to them indirectly. But you can say if you want to say. Well, he uh, kind of <laughs> talks like this and uh, <laughs> we try to raise the money and we did the best that we could. And that was about it. No. Um, so th- that guy was beginning to emerge. Was that OK? Was that was that better than my Dr. That Phil? was honestly really good. But what I started to wonder is. <laughs> I have yet to meet a black dude who doesn't do a really great Obama. <laughs> so I don't know if it's like, is it hard or is it like, I don't know. That's amazing. It's like the, the one time I can do a good impersonation. It's like, yeah, it, it happens to be one that every black guy could do. I just can't get my comedy career off the ground. Okay. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so at this time, um, everyone was worried about the economy. And, um, and, and there was a distinct period where after we raised that quarter of a million, we came out of the gate pretty strong. Uh, it's almost as if the well dried up and, and I remember investors were becoming increasingly more, more skeptical, increasingly more. This was, uh, would have been like 2000 before Obama got elected. Okay. So I, but yeah, it would have been 2008 then. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe somewhere around there, maybe somewhere right right around the housing crash, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So during this time, it's like it's it's almost as if it happened overnight. Investors just the the well dried up, and we had a really hard time, um, you know, getting money. And so at that point, we were like, "Hey, this is all we got, and we have to make this work." So we're gonna have to get super creative. We're gonna have to incentivize people in other ways to come in and contribute and work with us and help us get things done. And, and we gave our all. We, we gave our all to making that happen. We continue to try to raise money, but we just failed miserably. I had no experience prior to this at any kind of fundraising. Um, I had no experience with asking people for money. I had some experience in sales, but nothing quite like this. Um, and it, well, it was really tough. A sec yeah. first before we get to the once you raise a quarter million, then you hit the stall. Yep. You came out of the gate wanting to raise ten million. What? Right. Tell me about what that was like and what made you say, "Okay, we need to go back to the drawing board and do a much smaller raise." You said you failed miserably at that. What do you mean? How, how did that? What did that look like? That literally every person we talked to, um, not only said no because we were asking for more money, right? We we weren't making the the modest claims that we would later begin to make, um, and. Uh, so, so literally everybody said no, and and our asking price was too big. We just didn't experience any success or any indication of success. Besides that, besides that first person I, I mentioned, you know, th- there there was that first person that got really excited about the idea and and wanted to make a a pretty nice size investment. But you know, we kind of took that for granted and and sort of thought, oh yeah, of course, of course they want to invest that much money because. We have ourselves a really good idea, but that died really quickly, man. And we had to come back to the drawing board and say, we're not going to make that much money. It's not happening. And we've been trying long enough to make it happen. We, we have to, we have to figure out a way to build this thing on a shoestring budget or, or, or else the only alternative is to give up. 
That's the so, only alternative. Yeah. So you reframed it. And what was the next goal you went out to raise? Did you have a, a dollar amount then, or was it just like, let's get anything we can to just keep getting the website built? So, so the next goal was to get 1 million. We brought that all the way down to one and, and we succeeded at getting a quarter of a million and, and, and the well just began to dry up and we continue to try to raise more money, but we couldn't. And so we shifted our efforts to trying to get this thing to happen on the little amount of money that we could. And, um, and this, this was a heartbreaking period because it seemed like every step forward was met with like two steps back. Um, we would, you had a website live at this point, right? We had, we had a website live and you were like, you were like working on it. You didn't have like tech skills, but I remember you were, you were putting in a lot of grunt work trying to, I don't even remember what you were doing. We, we were all doing our best, doing our best to try to contribute to both the development side and the marketing side, uh, because we, we, we couldn't afford at that time. And maybe this was a problem of our network. The, uh, the talent that we needed to get us over the hump. And whenever we would find talent, you know, that, that would do it for, for cheap, they would always fall off or flake, you know, somewhere down the line. And so we were just relying on ourselves, man. And we were just eating away at our money, um, uh, keeping the site alive, trying to do everything we could to market it and promote it, trying to the make money more- going to, were you guys paying yourselves to do this? So I, I actually continued to to work uh, my job uh, outside of you know this. So I, I didn't I didn't take a paycheck. I continued to work um, because I I was very very cautious about running out of money. I I, I was always scared of that. So um, we continued to work and continued to hustle and support ourselves. And we spent what money we had on on getting our development to the level that we got it. And we spent the rest you know on, on mar- marketing efforts. And, and by the um, way, building a website was a lot more expensive and difficult than, than it is today. Like now you could launch with something built on a, you know, Genesis framework on WordPress or something for like whatever, five grand. Not, right. Not, not that hard to get a prototype. Now, you know, you guys had a ton of features and stuff, but you could have, you could have gotten a working prototype today or a basic minimum viable product for like 10, 20, 30 grand no problem. Then it was actually a lot harder to, to do that kind of thing, a lot more costly. Not only was it a lot harder and a lot more costly, but the kind of website that we were trying to build at that time, one that does the sorts of things that uh, Facebook and MySpace does and that that LinkedIn and LA Casting does, um, that that made it all the more expensive. And so we, we eventually ran out of money that was being devoted towards development and marketing. And that's when we really hit a wall. And we were completely reliant on ourselves to just work late hours to try to keep this thing alive. We went back to our investors and tried to get more money. Um, and, and we lost confidence there. We lost confidence there because we just weren't getting it done. Um, and, and it got to the point where after we ran out of money, it became more expensive for us to keep it alive. It was costing us money. We, we, ran, we went about six months longer basically spending money to keep it alive and to try to stay in the game. And and then we had to admit a, a hard truth to ourselves. Like, guys, I, I think this is what failure looks like. So the, I, I, I think that's what this means. Yeah. I remember you had a lot of like strategy pivots and ups and downs uh, during mm-hmm. this. And I, and I want to get into a few specific stories about fundraising and some of the lessons you learned there. Yeah, um, yeah. But at one point, did you did you have users of the site? 
We did have users. Um, what were they using it for? Like a forum basically to talk about things or were they sharing projects like you envisioned? Right. So we, we never achieved our full development goals with the site. So the, the project wizard that was like the secret sauce, the core of the site, uh, that never got fully developed. So it was primarily uh, being used at that time. We had a, a, you know, a few thousand users primarily being used as a combination of like discussion form, people sharing, uh, you know, uploading their, their videos, lots of people who were making things like web series or independent films, they would upload and share their content there. It was just another site for many people to promote your stuff on, right? Um, you, YouTube was, was continuing to grow strongly, but, but it didn't have the reputation that it now has. And, and so you basically had YouTube, you had like uh, Hulu in its earliest stages. And so independent filmmakers we're always looking for places where they could post their stuff and promote it, you know, to see what happens. How, how so that, that was our biggest crowd. Like at your highest point, how many people were using the site? We just had, a, we, we just had like a few thousand users. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, cause I, I do remember at one point too, when like, it looked like it was basically over, it was dead. And then I remember you calling me and being like, it's not quite dead. We realize yep. we actually are like making revenue in some kind of traffic that we never expected and getting some kind of ads and like we can use this to buy us the time to build the thing we really want. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So th there was about a three month period, one of them due to user activity and the other due to um, due to a, a potential investor where uh, we, we kind of got a second win and we got hope for new life. And, and I was really pumped up and excited about it. So there was a three month period where we had a tremendous amount of traffic. And we, when we saw, when we saw the huge spike in traffic that we got, we said, you know what? Like we don't have the quality site to keep these people here. They're here and they're paying attention to us right now. But if we want to keep them here, we got to upgrade this site. And so Maybe we decided that, that article I wrote about it. It, it was the article <laughs> you wrote about. It. <laughs> but but at, at this time we, we were we were hitting up a lot of film festivals. Um, I, I was working as a judge for a couple of different film festivals. We were networking pretty hard, working the local scene, getting out there, beating the pavement, and, and, and we were getting the buzz up, and we were getting a lot of support and a lot of people coming to the site. Um, and so we decided that we would use this period of just increased traffic. To, to try to get more investment money because we can show like, hey, this is what we're getting thus far and we don't and we don't even have the site where it needs to be. And, and we started to make a little bit of money um, uh, via, via ad revenue. We were able to sell, get approval on a few ads and make a little bit of money there, but still not enough to really uh, be, be sustainable. So we went back to trying to you know, get investments and we ended up having a guy who works in the music industry a record producer who really liked the idea and he, you know, this he, he said, story, he went, right. This is the one I'm, yeah. I was going to ask you about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He, All right. He, Tell he, us the he, whole he, shebang. So, so th this guy, um, he was actually a, a contact that Tom met when he was out networking and, uh, he had a meeting with Tom, Mark and myself, and all three of us just kind of made the case for Bulaka. He, he was on the phone with us for like an hour cause he was so excited asking all sorts of questions and then giving his creative ideas for all sorts of things that he could do and how we can actually pivot and make this um, more music centered because, you know, that that was his area of, of, of interest. And he was selling us on all these different ideas that he could bring. And basically what he wanted was to come in as an equal partner for a pretty significant investment. And 
we talked about it. We loved the idea. And we told him that we wanted to move forward with the amount of his investment and him coming on as an equal partner with his clout and so forth. We believe that would have been the thing that could have got us to the next level or at least bought us a significant amount of time. And and so so, you know, uh, this guy was all in. Everything seemed like it was great. And he wanted us to bring the uh, the paperwork, the finalized paperwork uh, to his place actually gave us an address to go to. And uh, we had his number and everything. We had already talked a few times before we got to this point. And we were just going there to have a business meeting where he re- where he signs the paperwork and where you know he gives the check. And he didn't pick up the phone. He didn't answer the door. Uh, you know, and, and we just kind of hung out for like an hour, maybe like maybe he overslept, maybe something like that. And, and we sort of gave up and was like, man, we don't know what happened. And then he actually called us back the next day and said, Hey, I was actually at this industry event. I was up really late and, um, you know, I ended up, you know, oversleeping. I'm sorry about that, but I still want to do this. Let's make it happen. And gave us another date for us to go handle our business. And the same story repeated itself. Nothing didn't hear back from him. Um, and so now given the way things turned out that first time we thought, well, obviously the guy still wants in, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have called us back and apologized like that if he didn't want in. So maybe something else just happened. Let's just keep following up and let's just seal the deal. Let's just focus on closing. And we called him and we called him and we emailed him and we called him. And at some point we accepted reality, which is this guy isn't going to email us back. This guy isn't going to call us back. And, and that was, that was a mind job because to this day, I still don't know what happened. I still can't make sense of what happened, right? Like all I can do is kind of let that go and be like, okay, maybe the guy was BSing us. Maybe he got cold feet. Maybe he got skeptical at the end. I don't know. Maybe he was never serious, but all I know is that we never closed that deal. We never got that check. And when that happened, it kind of broke our spirits because we were already at the point where it was time to close shop. And that, that was a last bit of hope. And even, even when that bit of hope first emerged, we were all kind of nervous about it. We were all kind of scared to get heartbroken. We were, we, we had already had this, enough this stories. Seems too good to be true. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. you had, you had kind of started to make your peace with like, I just don't think this is the thing. And then you'd had that traffic spike and you're like, hold up, maybe there's something here. And then I remember when you're like, Zeke, this is it, man. We got this guy. It's back. It's real. It's you let yourself get excited about it again. And after that, after he stood you up that second time, I remember you telling me that you should have listened to something. You should have remembered something that uh, your, your old theater professor would tell you, which was never count the money until the check clears. <laughs> yeah. He said, n- n- never make plans and never call your mom until the check is cleared. Yep. Cause you had like, all right, we're back. And after going through that, and then I also remember after you finally said, Bulaka is done. You said to me, however long it was that you guys were doing this and you were basically always trying to fundraise the whole time. I remember you saying, Wait, I, I, I know where you're going, but before right, you right. go, there, I won't, I won't go there. All right. You take it. You take it. Before, before you go there around the time that Bulaka was coming to its inevitable end, I also ended up teaming up with a couple of friends 
who ran an independent film production company and joining the team with them. And at that time, I knew that Bulaka was coming to a close. We had hit a rut with that. I still wanted to work on the business side. I was still looking for opportunities. These were two guys that I that I respected a lot, still do respect them a lot. And they knew a lot about the filmmaking process, the production process. I knew nothing about that side of things, but I knew I had this entrepreneurial sense. And I also had that financial background. And I said to the guys, hey, man, you don't have to pay me anything. I'll, I'll work as hard as anybody else and I'll work for free and I'll take my rewards on the back end. All I ask is for the opportunity to be that annoying guy who can ask you questions at any time and ask you to explain what you're doing because I want to learn how the, how the production game works. And what I'll bring to the table is my sense of financial literacy. Like when it comes to financial plans, when it comes to business plans, when it comes to budgets, when it comes to putting together pitch materials for the films and things along those lines, I can be the dude to make that happen. Just let me be a part of this and let me hang around. And, and it worked. And, and I was able to start working with those guys. So there's some overlap here. As Bulaka was coming to an end, that opportunity was beginning to give me new life. And, and it felt like, all right, that thing didn't work. That was heartbreaking. But I'm, I'm still in the game here. And, I, and I'm still working on something that I believe in, that I think is really cool, and that allows me to fulfill these dreams of being on the production business side of film. So, so that, that was the next step. We're, we're going to get to where you're going in terms of, you know, how it all ended, but, but that was the next step. So what was the, when did you finally say we're officially done with Bulaka and what did you and, and your partners do basically at that point? When we got to the point where we couldn't afford to spend our own money to keep this thing alive, uh, you know, at least about six months past the point where we started to lose money, we we had a call and we talked about it and we wrote a, a letter to all of our investors and the people that had faith in us and believed in us. And um, we let them know, you know, what the deal was. And at this point, at this point, a lot of our investors had already started reaching out to us basically saying, hey, guys, I think you should close it up. You know, um, I know it's heartbreaking, but you should close it up. At least we can all write this off. It's more profitable for us at this point if you just shut this down and let us write it off. And we resisted that pressure for a little bit. But, you know, um, you know, we, we decided at that point we have to do this. We have to do this if for no other reason than responsibility to them. Was so, that really so, hard having raised from friends and family who it was ex- were not super high net worth individuals who were excited about you, believed in you. What was it tough to deal with that? It was exceptionally hard. It was exceptionally hard. Um, I still have every relationship that I had when I started this, but it definitely put a strain. It definitely put a strain. Um, because if you're in, if, if you're getting money from a VC, from a total stranger, they're accustomed to risk, um, and they kind of go into it with an understanding of the risk involved. But you're getting two thousand dollars here from a family member; they might really need that two thousand dollars, right? And when 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 you believe in your idea and you're confident that you're going to win, and you need whatever money you can get, and you've got a family member that believes in you, 
you got a friend that believes in you and they say, I'm going to put $2,000 behind this. I'm going to put $5,000 behind this. You're confident, man, that you're going to make good on that. And you you don't really anticipate a day where you got to go back to those people and be like, well, that $5,000 that you invested, it's gone to hell, <laughs> you know, uh, and, 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 thanks and for the experience you gave me. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the experience and self-knowledge you gave me. And, and, and it's exceptionally tough, too, because there were people in my life who said things like, man, I believe in you. I've got faith in you. And I don't even understand what you're working on, but I believe in you. And, and man, that is tough. It feels great when they're writing a check saying that because you're cashing in on your social capital. And it's the worst feeling in the world when you got to go back and let those people know that you failed them. And that was unlike auditioning for American Idol and failing. That was just on me. You know, I, I, I didn't lose anybody's money. That was just on me. Um, and this was my first, like, legit taste at depression. I remember having just like a few days in a row, man, where I didn't want to do anything. I didn't, I didn't want to. I didn't want to dream. I didn't want to inspire people. I didn't want to make any positive statements because I felt like I let down a lot of people that placed faith in me. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's $2,000, $5,000. It doesn't matter if it's not millions. You know, at the end of the day, there's no way to, there's no other way to frame it. I lost their money. They invested in me and I failed. That sucks, man. That's the worst feeling in the world. Um, and, and, and that was discouraging. That almost buried me. I, I would say the, the opportunity that I got with these guys to work in the independent film production company, it, it kept me going and it gave me a lot of hope and it, and it softened the blow a little bit, but it was really heartbreaking and it was really discouraging. Um, but if there, if there's one good thing that came out of that besides self-knowledge, <laughs> it's, in the same way that American, the American Idol experience purified me of fear, the Bulaka experience purified me of desperation. Um, as a result of that experience, I made up my mind very firmly that I would never, under any circumstances whatsoever, take money from a person unless I had full confidence in their ability to lose it and be okay. But that no matter how much I needed the money, I would never accept money out of a sense of desperation and powerlessness. Because the headaches that come from taking money from somebody, um, they're not really worth it. They're not really worth it. Um, and at, I, at the end of – yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I remember you telling me that you said when the Bulaka thing ended, you said, you know what? I feel like this weight is lifted because I've been basically in a mode where I, I felt desperate, almost a scarcity mindset where I needed money and I needed to convince people to give me money. And you're like, I'm never going to put myself in that position again. I don't like the way it feels. It doesn't resonate with who I am and what I want to be. I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm desperate for other people to, you know, begrudgingly part with their resources in order for me to do what I want to do. Like, I don't, I don't like the way that feels, you know, I remember you yeah. being really, really struck with that. I was really dramatic about that. And, and that stuck with me, by the way, when I started doing fundraising for a nonprofit, I always remembered that. And anytime I was in a meeting where it felt like I started to need them to say yes more than they wanted to, I would just immediately kill it and be like, look, 
that's fine. We're not for you. You don't want to, you don't want to donate. And the, the freedom that comes from never letting yourself be in a position where it's like, I need you to do this. Not only does it make you better at your job and more attractive to people and makes them want to invest in you, but it frees you from all that horrible tension that people normally associate with asking for money. And if you approach it in that way, I don't want to talk to people unless they're excited to give and I am not coming at it from a point of desperation. That was really powerful. And I remember how impactful that was for you. And that really helped me frame my mindset. Well, you know, this reminds me of of my college days when I was dating a girl who tried to break up with me. Um, It's so clear in retrospect that she was trying her best to break up with me. (laughs) And... And I pretty much argued her into staying. Uh, you know, I, I I somehow used the combination of lo- logic and rhetoric to persuade her to stay with me in spite of the fact that she had clearly emotionally checked out. And, and what that really means is I out-talked her, I stomped her philosophically, and because she didn't know how to stand up for herself, she stayed with me begrudgingly for a few more months before she got to a point of realizing that <laughs> – you, I got to get out of this congratulations, relationship. Congratulations, TK. You negotiated yourself into two months of hell. <laughs> right, right. And it was hell for me the entire time. <laughs> and, and, and I learned in that situation, all the more so in Bulaka, that when you have to beg someone to be your customer, you're going to have to beg them to stay your customer, and you're going to have to beg them to be happy with the product. And there is nothing in the world that makes that worth it. You only want to work with people that are confident in it that believe in it and that can talk themselves into it. Um, and you know, w- when it came to this scenario, it's funny because the, the people that invested the least were actually the, the people that, that demanded the most at- attention. Uh, I remember, uh, <laughs> you no, know, I mean, I can't imagine a, a, a whole bunch of like, you know, $2,000, $5,000 investors. That's a whole different, it's just not, not, I imagine just not worth the maintenance and the stress. I mean, I had people emailing me every day wanting to know what we did that day, how we spent our time, um, you know, what our plans were for the next week, you know, um, all sorts of things, you know, coming at everything from a place of, of, of skepticism, fear and desperation. And, and I totally understand, but it's not something that I would ever want to do again. But, but here's the bigger, more important point to me. It's not just about feeling powerless when you need someone else to give you money. It's not like, I'm such a big shot that I'm above ever wanting or needing anybody's help. I'm okay with asking for help if I need it and putting myself in a position where I have to respect that other person's freedom of choice. But the more important point to me was that as a result of doing that, being in a position where I'm asking people for money and I feel like I can't do anything until they write me a check, it put me in a permission-based mindset where I felt like I'm this creative person who came out here to do creative things And I can't act on those creative impulses until someone gives me permission with the paycheck. That to me is the ultimate form of powerlessness. When you have a gift like the ability to write or the ability to act or the ability to produce and you feel like you can't express it at all until someone wealthy and powerful says, I believe in you, I give you a check. And and I made up my mind as a result of both the Bulaka experience and some of the subsequent failures with the film production company, I made up my mind that I would adopt what I call a non-permission-based approach to creativity, which means, yes, if people want to invest in me, I will entertain the possibility 
but I will never ever involve myself in any project that doesn't have a way of moving forward without the permission of another person's paycheck. So if there's something that I want to do and I can't do it unless there's an investor behind me, either I'm approaching it in the wrong way and I'm not being creative enough or I'm just doing the wrong damn thing. Yep. Yeah. You got the cart before the horse. You, you do something that you're going to move forward no matter what. And it's by that very momentum that will attract people to say, Hey, I want to be a part of this. And then you can decide whether or not having them be a part of it is going to be worth the, you know, the trade-offs. And that, that is so powerful. And that, that mindset was absolutely crucial in getting practice off the ground. And rather than seeking investment, just trying to seek that first customer, um, which resulted in investment finding us when we weren't looking for it. So let's talk about the production company. So you kind of yeah. start doing this while Bulaka is kind of on the downslide. You close up Bulaka. You're still working at the restaurant to, to pay the bills and mm-hmm. you get involved in this production company. Now you guys had a screenplay or like a treatment or whatever you call it. That was pretty awesome. And you had some really amazing meetings with executives from Disney and all kinds of places that really loved this. And it got so close to being greenlit several times, right? Yeah. So, so we got to talk about my other job in order to see how this connects. So yes, I'm working at the bar, the bartending gig still through this whole thing. And there's a, a lady who comes into the bar a lot with her husband. She's one of my regulars. They come to the bar every time she come there, she'd order two martinis and she would only drink the first one. And I would always tell her, stop ordering two martinis. You never drink the second one. But that was her thing. She had to do it the same way every time, but they were a really great couple. And I, and I hit it off with them really well. And then one day she throws me a pitch. She says, hey, look, I run a doggy daycare and I would love to have a guy like you work with me. I love for you to be my office manager and I love for you to help me run my business. And she said, let's talk about it. So we exchanged numbers. And at this point, um, I, I, I was looking for something. There were some management changes at my job. I was looking for kind of a different atmosphere. I was already thinking about maybe going to a different restaurant or what have you. And so I, I called her up and talked with her and I, I went and visited her business and I really liked what she was doing. And the biggest thing was when I told her about my dreams and my projects and my priorities, she said to me, you can spend work time working on that stuff. All I care about is that an orderly environment is maintained, that the dogs are okay, and that these things on this list are done every day. But this is not a high-maintenance kind of job. So I'm totally cool if you want to spend time here reading, listening to podcasts, working on your business and stuff like that. I completely support you in that. And she and she backed that up. And so I, I left the restaurant and I began to, to work with her. And, and now I'm in an environment where I'm working at a doggy daycare <laughs> and, and, and I'm still, I'm still doing my, my, my side entrepreneurial stuff. So yes, to go back to what you brought up, uh, we had a script for a horror film. We shot a trailer. We had all of our pitch materials, the character dossier and so forth. And one of her clients happened to be a film producer. And I didn't know this. I had worked with this person for several months and never once talked to them about what they do. They never once talked to me about my dreams. We just interacted with, the, with each other uh, you know, in a friendly way. And then one day we get into a conversation and they ask me about what I do besides that job. And I, and I talk to them about the stuff that I'm working on. 
and and this person said, uh, "You should send me send me a script. I love to see it." And I thought to myself, "Oh wow, that's that's cool. That's interesting." And so when I when I told my employer about it, she said she said, "Well, you know that guy is a film producer." And I was like, "Really?" And she said, "Yeah." So we looked him up on the Internet Movie Database, and it turns out that this is one of those guys that you would want to know. It's a pretty influential guy. He's made some pretty big films, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" So um, I told my partners about it. I sent him a, um, I sent him a copy of the trailer and the the one sheet, and he immediately replied back and says, "Give me the script. I want to read the script." And you know, in Hollywood, you gotta beg people to read your scripts. You don't get people asking you to read the script. And he says, "I want to I want to see the script." And it was a script that you know one of my partners wrote, and um, I sent him the script, and he read it within a couple of days, and he said, I want to meet you and your partners for lunch. I want to talk about this. And so we met him for lunch, and he told us how much he loves the script. And, and this is what one of the things he said to us. He says, everybody in this industry, they're all copycats. They only do things that are safe. He says so, and at this time he goes, all of the scripts that come across my desk are scripts that are paranormal romance movies about about vampires and stuff because everybody's trying to be like Twilight. This is when Twilight was really hot. He says, but you guys are doing something different. You guys are doing something unique, something innovative. Uh, and he says, I want to be a part of this. I want to help you guys get this movie made. And, and, and he talked with us about a plan of action for how he could connect us to some people. Um, how he could help us out with the project. And if there was ever a moment in my Hollywood career where I felt like I met the guy and where I was going to make it, it was this moment. This because be the moment that you write about in the books that like finally the breakthrough happened. Yes, th this was the thing that made all the Bulaka drama worth it in my eyes. And I actually called my parents after this, after this uh, conversation. Uh-oh. And Don't call your mom until the check clears. Yes. And I was on the phone like, yes, like this is about to happen. You know what I mean? This is about to happen. And, and I remember uh, our friend Ian, I, I was uh, I, I called him up and I'm like on the phone screaming like, dude, dude, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Well, you and I probably had a conversation like this. I was oh, yeah. pretty pumped up about it. I was pretty pumped. And, and there was no reason for me to think this wasn't going to happen because this wasn't just some guy I met at a cocktail party. I knew this guy for some time. He seemed legit. He expressed a lot of interest. And then we experienced the phenomenon known as a project being stuck in development hell. You know, when, once a project gets handed around to a bunch of people, you get introduced to a bunch of people, there's a lot of talk and more and more names get attached to a project, more questions get asked, different people want to make sure that they play this role and that role. And long story short, it just got stuck in development hell. I don't, I don't even know if it got that far. And it just never got off the ground. And the, the guy that was committed to helping us did the best that he could, and he's a good guy who's still a part of my life to this day, but he wasn't able to get us to that point where we were able to green light it. And it ended up being just an, another heartbreaking experience. And, and, and we had a number of things that we were trying to do during that time. So it wasn't just like we had lunch with this guy, we got our hopes up, and then the next week everything fell through. It was a process, a process where that hope was sustained, a process that involved 
a lot of work to, to prep ourselves for the opportunity and the success that we thought we would have. And when it came to an end, man, it, it was another heartbreaking experience. And so, at that, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. At, at that point, at that point, I felt pretty broken because I came out here. I finally got in the thick of it. I'm pursuing my dreams. The Bulaka thing was pretty damn depressing. But but this was kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel that came into my life at the right time. I meet this guy. Everything about this story seemed to unfold just like all of the other stories I read about in Chicken Soup for the Soul books. <laughs> and, you know, I, I remember advice that I got from Peter Daniels, who said, over the course of your lifetime, read a thousand biographies, because in doing so, you will build a vast vocabulary of overcoming incredible odds. And I felt like I was at a point in my life where I was experiencing the reality of that advice. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, my story is like this person's and it's like that person's and, and, and this is the moment in my life where it, where it all makes sense and blah, blah, blah. And it fell through. And at this point, I was broken. I had no backup. I had no other business idea. This was something that I believed in and it didn't work. And I just felt deflated. And it was part depression and part anger that that's when I doubled down on this non-permission based, based approach to creativity. And I said, that's it. That's it. I don't even care about what industry it is. I don't care about what type of job it is. I care about one thing, not asking for permission. That is it. I don't want to work on any projects anymore, no matter who I work with, if I got to ask for permission to do the work. I'm tired of waiting to create. I'm tired of waiting for somebody to introduce me to someone, to write a check, to make a connection, to green light my project. F that. I'm going to start creating now without asking for permission. And the only thing that made sense for me to do was start a blog. That was the only thing that made sense for me to do. Because... It was the one thing that I could go online and do for free, and it was the one thing that I could, I could show up and I could publish something even if it sucked. And it was the ultimate expression of power for me because here's a guy that has no business starting a blog and nobody can stop me. I don't have to ask a producer. I don't have to ask an English teacher. I can write whatever I want to write. It can be absolutely terrible. I can publish it and there's nobody on the planet that can do a damn thing about it. And and that felt like the right thing to do. And that was my next step. I said, I'm going to show up every day and I'm going to write a blog post every day for a year because I need to immerse myself in the experience of doing something that doesn't require any permission from anyone. I, I remember when this began and you're, you kind of explored all these different avenues, like feeling out, creating your kind of brand, your voice as finally being the person who owns his own brand and getting to dictate what that is. And so you had tough-minded optimism, which was a Facebook page and quotes and things you would share. I think it was even a website. That was your original website at one point. And it got a really huge following. Then you created gossip gone good, which was a separate Facebook page. And you were, you were out in Vegas exploring, getting a newsletter started where you would do stories about some of the yep 
entertainers who were doing acts in Vegas. And I remember how excited you were after being in Vegas. You're like, there's something about the entertainers here that's different. They're so committed to the hustle. They're not yep. too good for anything. They love the work. I want to start interviewing them. I want to create this mm-hmm. gossip gone good thing. And you kind of were building that brand. And both of these, you got a lot of traction on social media and you're mm. kind of exploring your voice, figuring out, wait, I got all this philosophy stuff that I, I still love to talk about this. I like to get weird. I like to get self-helpy. I like to get into all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you launched a couple podcasts. You were, you were like figuring out what your brand was, but you just all of a sudden exploded with this creative production in all these different directions. And I can totally see now having all this pent up waiting, waiting for someone to cut the check, waiting for someone to green light the project, waiting, 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 and finally being like, screw that. I can do whatever I want to. Yeah. And, and you, and you, and you challenged me when I started feeling in a, in a rut to start blogging every day after you'd been doing it for maybe a year and a half or something. And I started, which really unleashed the flowering of ideas for me, which led to the creation of Praxis, which, you know, eventually not long after you started, started working with me, but I it really, it really not to be too dramatic, but it really can all be traced back to that decision to say, screw the permission-based mindset. And I'm going to start being a creator. And even, and even me coming to you and saying, I need you to help me build Praxis. I can tell you right now, I never would have done that with just the TK I knew for the previous whatever decade or so. Mm -hmm. But the TK I knew that started blogging every day, that showed me a side of you because you always had the smarts and intelligence and passion. You're great with people, good communicator. But I didn't know if you had that level of like grinded out discipline necessary and focus to get a, a startup like this going until I saw you show up and blog every single day. And I knew some of the stories of how crazy it was. Some of the blog posts you've tried to get out when you're in the hospital or in whatever. Um and it just showed me a part of you. I like it it transformed you in a way. You truly like became the master of your own fate in a in a without being too dramatic that, that I kind of like witnessed and it rubbed off on me as well and had this really cool it was like planting the seed of you know what eventually grew out of it. Oh, you know, it's funny because I you know, I've read a lot of self-help books and books on spirituality as you know and I've had a lot of people ask me, "Hey, uh what are some books that have kind of influenced your your views on optimism, self-reliance, self-determinism, and so forth? And as much as I could go on about some of the cool books that have shaped my thinking, nothing has contributed to me being um, a resilient person quite like blogging every day. Because prior to that, I, I was always loyal primarily to what I believed in, loyal to my passions. And that's what gave rise to a lot of the spontaneity, a lot of the mind shifting, a lot of a lot of the things that made other people nervous. Like, you know, like my, my dad said to me, he goes, he goes, you scare me, kid, because I feel like you're the type of guy that's going to wake up one day and say, I want to be the mayor. And then you'll devote yourself to three years to nothing but that. And then on the day you get elected, you'll be like, I'm bored now. I want to go work at a restaurant, (laughs) you know, and and, and that is kind of how I've always been. Right. Like you just can't predict where I'm going to go, what's going on. Like, because every, every dream I pursue causes me to evolve and, and I'm always keeping up with my evolution and abandoning dreams, not feeling uh, obligated to them. But blogging every day required me to prioritize something above my mood above my circumstances and even above my epiphanies. 
You know, there's something about putting your word out there and saying, I am going to do what I said I'm going to do, but it's not a good time today. But, 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 but you have a surgery today, but you're getting married today, but your best friend is getting married today and you're doing the wedding, but it's your anniversary or whatever. It's just not a good day to do this and saying, it doesn't matter if it's not a good day. It doesn't even matter if I'm enjoying this anymore. I said I was going to do it. And I'm going to be a man about it and I'm going to show up and I'm going to do it. That has such a profound impact on my mentality that by the time I was done with that, I mean, I would say by the time I was three months in, I had this unprecedented confidence that if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. If I make up my mind to make something happen, I have that power to make it happen and that I'm the only force that can stop myself. And after a year, it changed my mindset so much that I decided to do it for a second year. And then I decided to do it for a third year and I blogged three days straight. And, and, and it's funny because you talk about how it influenced you to involve me with Praxis and, and you wouldn't have done that had I not established that track record of just consistent production, the ability to grind it out. But, but from my perspective, showing up every day and writing about my outlook on life and gradually building a following, even though I never intended to build a following and you know, giving people advice, motivating people, it actually opened the door for me to get a couple of speaking gigs. Uh, I wasn't looking for that. I didn't want that. Um, and it opened the door for me to go to a couple events and give talks because of the things that I wrote about. And once I did that, I fell in love with that experience. And, and today, you know, I, I do about anywhere from, depending on how much I accept, anywhere from 10 to 15 speaking gigs a year. I could easily do more if I didn't say no. And being a public speaker is a, is a viable part of my life. It's, it's, it's brought some pretty good income to my life. It's brought some pretty good opportunity, some pretty good traveling experiences. I could have never known that would have been a part of my career, but it was one of the positive externalities of, of blogging every day. Yeah. So with the, you know, production company sort of slowly kind of, okay, this isn't going anywhere. I don't want to be reliant on this. You start doing these creative things. And meanwhile, you've got this job where you're at this, you know, doggy daycare, but really you basically started running the business and the, the woman who owned it loved you. You were kind of managing it. You had very high net worth clients. You had a good relationship with them. It was a very, very profitable business. And you loved the flexibility to work on all these different things. I remember we would, you know, you call me on the phone and there'd be dogs barking in the background. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't normal. And so you kind of had this flexibility to explore and do stuff. And I remember when, you know, I kind of pitched you on the idea of Praxis. You thought it was, okay, that sounds pretty cool. So I start get this thing going. And after, you know, and I, I contracted with you, I said, look, I, I want you to build part of the curriculum. I want you to build this philosophy module. And, you know, we talked through what I wanted it to be like. I want it to be really practical to help people really learn things that are going to be valuable to them. And you latched on, you did an awesome job building that, you know, we're bootstrapping this thing. We get to, and I'm still working full time. I get invited to do a couple speaking gigs that I couldn't do because I had my full-time job commitment and I was also doing a few other speaking gigs to kind of promote Praxis. And I called you up and I said, man, I need you. I need you to go. I think it was Dallas. I need you to go to Dallas. And speak. this is funny because we, we almost got into a fight over this. Yeah. I was like, I need you to go because I've got this other, like, this is the shot. They're asking me to come and talk about the ideas behind Praxis and promote it to an audience of people who are great potential customers 
to get this thing off the ground. I need you to go do this. And you were like, I don't know this audience, this topic. I don't, I'm like, dude, I need you to do it. Like I'll pay you, I don't know, a thousand bucks or 500 bucks or something like that. (laughs) Maybe I only paid for your travel costs. I don't remember. And I'm like, come on, I need you to do this. And I think there was two Philadelphia and Dallas. And you were like super hesitant. I'm like, trust me, dude, they're going to love you. You're going to, it's going to be amazing. And, uh, you eventually, you did it. And I remember when you came back from those two gigs, you said, okay, I've liked Praxis. I love the idea. I've supported you. I've, you know, you and I have had conversations about higher ed and how inefficient it is for over a decade, even before that I built this part of the curriculum, but now that I've gone and spoken about it and seen people's reactions, I, I want, I'm in. I'm all in. Let's do this. And I remember that was a, and and I think it was really cool for me too, to be able to kind of, cause I had sort of built a network in this world of sort of libertarians, free market people. I'd been doing fundraising, educational things, kind of a, a group of philosophical people who were motivated by the ideas of liberty. You had built this network in people in the entertainment industry And we shared so many ideas philosophically. And I always was like, oh, I want to like merge you into that. Like you're going to, you're going to just kill it here. You're going to love it. Like I I need to pull you into my world somehow. And getting you to say yes to those speaking gigs was the greatest thing because it got you super hyped about Praxis. And now, now our worlds collided and uh, we've got so much more overlap in our networks. Oh man, it's the most awesome thing. And you know, one of the last speaking engagements I did, I had a guy come up to me and said, I want to be a professional speaker. Can you give me some tips on how to get started? And I just laughed. I I, I wanted to say, well, um, go to grad school for philosophy, work at an assisted living facility, audition for American Idol, work as a bartender, <laughs> pursue some Hollywood dreams, break up with your girlfriend, scare the hell out of everybody you know, Babysit and then help some out. dogs, blog every <laughs> yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have no clue, dude. I have no clue how to become a public speaker. <laughs> but I, I also remember when, so we had the, after that, I was like, all right, let's, let's do this. And I pitched you. I said, I want you to be the education director for Praxis. And you're like, all right, I'm in. What's it mean? I'm like, I'm not entirely sure yet. <laughs> it depends on how many customers we get. And, what we, and so you're still, both of us are still working. And I think maybe sometime in the fall, I had... I had finally, I had gotten some angel investment and I had left my job. So the first opening seminar happens with the first class and you come into town and Zach is there and we run this, this seminar and we're like, this is awesome. It's real. We got six customers. This is a real thing. They, they were really excited. It was a great seminar. And afterwards, you were going to be sort of managing and guiding, coaching them, and mentoring them through the process and managing and guiding the education experience, which is very different than it looks like now in many ways. But, and you were putting so much more time in than I ever expected. You were so, I mean, you had basically two full-time jobs and you were like, I don't know if I was paying you like either nothing or like a few hundred bucks a month. And I remember you were like the hardest challenge was, and you never cared about, you're like the hardest challenge is when I'm trying to do a, a coaching call or host a workshop with the participants and the dogs are barking in the background. <laughs> and it would be another, I don't know, six months or something before we were able to to say, get all right, I need, I need all of your time. We need to get you out of that job. But that, that was just hilarious trying to, to mask the sound of dogs barking in the background from your day job while you're the education director for Praxis. man, that was so hilarious. You know, it, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, 
that was a difficult job for me to leave. Uh, not merely because I was comfortable. Um, and I feel, I feel the need to say this because we, we live at a time where so many people idolize the status of working from home and they romanticize it. I, I never at any point was like, yeah, I get to work from home. I, I've always taken pride in everything that I've ever done. And I, I've never hung my head low because of any type of job I've had. And I've never given anybody the power to make me feel bad about myself because of any kind of job. I've always looked at my jobs as, as extensions of my creative power. Like this shows that I'm a real man, right? Like, like I'm willing to do whatever I got to do to make, to make my dreams happen. And I felt like I created a lot of value there and uh, the people that I worked with and worked for didn't want to see me leave. It was tough for them. And that made me feel immensely valued. And I felt like I could have gone far there and that was really hard to leave, you know? Um, but, but I knew at the end of the day that we would not be able to realize our full potential with this, um, without that, that fuller amount of dedication. But for me, it wasn't like this romantic thing of like, yay, I get to uh, be at home and uh, work in my pajamas. And that's a cool lifestyle. Like, no, it was like, oh, man, you know, this is about to be hard as hell. I'm going to have to work my butt off and I'm going to have to be even more accountable because I'm getting paid for it. I like I like working for free and not making money. Yeah, I remember you telling me <laughs> I was like, all right, it's time like going all in. I need all your time. I'm going to you know, we're going to pay you real money now. And you were like, that makes me, that makes me so uncomfortable. I like working for free so much better. (laughs) You know, my whole life, I had always been the kind of guy who like, all right, um, I have my dreams. I want to be free to do crazy stuff. Nobody's going to take care of me. So I'll go ahead and get these two jobs over here, work 60 hours a week. And that'll finance my lifestyle of staying up till three in the morning, reading books all the time, doing philosophy and pursuing creative stuff. And for, for this, this was scary because you're like, it's not going to be like that anymore. It's not like you're going to go work your two side jobs. I'm not expecting you to do anything and everything blows me away because you stay up till four o'clock in the morning for free working. It's going to be expected. And, and, that, and that required a, a shift in my orientation. Um, how much can you produce? How good can you be when, when, when it's expected of you? When it's yeah, demanded? And, that, and, and that's a huge advantage that I think young people don't realize you have such an opportunity to stand out, get connections, blow people away when you're working for cheap or free. Don't underestimate that and immediately try to get the most paycheck you can. In fact, take the smallest amount you can early on because it allows you the flexibility and freedom for one, to not get used to a lifestyle that you feel stuck in. And so you feel like you can never jump at other opportunities or lower paying. But two, when you're the guy who's like, I'm in, I'm working for free it's so easy to blow people away and impress them and do that. And then once it's time to make that transition and they say, you're too valuable to leave and obviously I can't keep you for free forever. Let's do this. Let's make it real. Understand when that happens, that something transitions, that now it's no longer impressive that you turned around a project in two hours when you didn't have to and you weren't getting paid for it. Now it's expected. Now all the things that were impressive before are just expectations. And that's a good thing. You want to grow. You want to level up like that. But seize that early opportunity to say, I mean, that's how every, literally everybody on the Praxis team started coming and being like, I want to help. I want to do this and working for free and being so impressive that I was like, we can't lose this person. We need to start paying them. Um, but that can be a tough transition when you go to, because now it's not that impressive. You know, the intern who does really great stuff is impressive. The employee who does is, that's a baseline expectation. So um, 
Yeah. So in the four years since we launched, I mean, it's so funny looking back at that. I mean, it feels like it's been, in some ways, it's been a flash. In other ways, it feels like it's been decades. But how much has changed? And like your, you know, your role, my role, the company, the the growth. You know, we've got a, a full team now. We've got. I mean, the curriculum is totally different than it used to be. The it's a, it's a completely different thing. Now you are, you know, the education director for Praxis and you're this phenomenal speaker who's in high demand. But when you look at that, it'd be really easy to say, wow, that guy, he's clearly just laser focused, great communicator. He's honed his skills. He's a, you know, that could never be me. And, but you look back at your career trajectory and it's like, well, nobody could ever predict this stuff. The one, the one thing you always seem to have done was not have regrets, not be double-minded about the choices you make, not feel bad about them, and to go all in at whatever choice you make and not and not have a whole bunch of FOMO that, oh no, if I do this, I'm going to miss this other thing. Um, at least that's kind of one of the things I pull away. But, but without me saying it, now that we've sort of come to your career story, you know, caught up to present day, and I know we've left so many hilarious and amazing things out, uh, including the Olive Garden and, and other great, <laughs> great little stories. Um, when you look back thus far, what would you say? Are there like specific lessons you take away? Do you have like a couple of quick bullets that you're like, this, this, and this are the main things that I've learned from all these various experiences? How would you, how would you sort of, how would you sort of summarize your professional story arc and the lessons you've taken away? You know, I think one of the most important lessons I've taken away is if whatever it is you do at any given moment in time, you do it with the integrity, you do it with all of your might and you take pride in it, it will always serve you at later stages of your life. You never have to worry about wasting your time at a job or even in a relationship as long as you believe in what you're doing at that time and you dedicate yourself to it. I, I don't have any regrets about anybody I've dated or about any job I've had. I don't, I don't look at my life now like, well, I'm currently working with Praxis. Oh, why did I waste my time at Applebee's? I'm married to Michelle. Oh, why did I waste my time dating that girl in high school? Every experience that you have is something that contributes to the making of an interesting person. And so many people are, are, are obsessed with having a backup plan, but the best backup plan is being an interesting human being, being someone who has cool stories to tell, interesting and unique experiences to draw from. Even when I give talks, I, I, I think what makes my talks resonate with people is the fact that I'm pulling from stories that are uniquely my own. I'm giving talks that you can't give if you're memorizing a script. I'm giving talks that only I can give because I'm pulling from the stuff that has interested me over the year, for over the years, or I'm pulling from the stuff that I've learned over the years. So I think this goes back to a conversation we've had earlier where so many people are afraid of missing out on options. So many people are afraid of making decisions they will regret. And I think there's a better way to look at life. And I think that is sometimes the best path to where you want to be is doing what it is you're currently doing with integrity because those are the things that move you forward. I mean, everything that I'm doing today with Praxis is benefiting from things that I learned as a bartender, as a restaurant server, working in an Alzheimer's dementia unit of an assisted living facility, uh, as a person auditioning for American Idol. I don't see any of those experiences as being irrelevant. And I do not believe that I would have been better off 
had I received a vision from the angel Gabriel 20 years ago saying, you are going to be a part of Praxis. Start preparing now. Like, no, I got the best preparation by doing things that I believed in every step of the way. I, I think another thing, too, we can even talk about that looking forward. Um, I think you and I both can agree that there's probably more to our lives if we're lucky to live long enough than Praxis, right? That that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, there's got to be something else we're going to be inspired to create at some point before we die that that has nothing to do with what we're doing now. So, so what does that mean? Does that mean we kind of you know, put one foot in and one foot out and say, well, I'm going to save part of myself for the things I'll be interested in 20 years from now. No, the best way to be prepared for those things is to go all in right now with what my hand finds to do. So I think it not only makes sense of the past, but it also preps me for the future a lot more as well. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I love, I love talking to people about their career trajectories because it always reinforces what I've sort of come to adopt over the years which is not even, you know, you said you've always done things that you believed in and done them all the way, all the way. And, and I'm not at all disagreeing with that. I almost like, I try to make it even easier on myself. I don't even give myself the standard of like, do something I believe in or something I love. I just, it's just don't do stuff you hate. And rather than a path from one point to the next, it's more like a funnel. Like as long as you're in the general funnel, you could be anywhere in there doing any number of things. As long as you're not outside of the funnel, which is things you hate, you're in the funnel of things I don't hate. It gets narrower and narrower as you go along. Or maybe a, a better metaphor would be like, a, it's more like a sculpture um, than it is a painting where you've got to paint all the perfect lines. The sculpture, it's like the perfect thing is in there and all you got to do is remove one by one. Okay, I don't want this piece here. Now that I, let me remove that. Let me remove that. And everything else doesn't matter what you remove as long as you you just keep removing things that you don't like until you end up with this this core that's awesome. And so like there is no as long as you don't absolutely hate it and it's not sucking your soul and making you a version of yourself that's opposite of what you want to be, then you're moving roughly in the right direction. And that and the field of options of things you don't hate will just narrow more and more and you'll end up in places you never could have imagined. But I think trying to stress yourself out with like I need to pick each step on my path because there's one path to the one thing. Um, I think it's false and uh, assumes too much about your own knowledge and self-knowledge and knowledge of the world. And I just don't think it's possible. It creates a lot of stress. And so I love seeing your, as I called it, a scatter plot. You know, the one thing all the choices you made had in common was when you started to feel a little dull or a little dead inside or like this might become something that feels like a chain. This might become a shackle. This might become something that I hate. Then you moved on and it almost didn't even matter what you moved on to as long as you weren't doing something you hate, you know? Hey, here's another thing too, man, because- Maybe, it can maybe I'm e trying to cram your story into my paradigm, but that's <laughs> that's how I see it anyway. No, man, it, it makes a lot of sense, but, but here's something I do want to clarify. It can easily sound like what we're saying is TK was a flake all his life and things seem to be turning out well for him, but I was never a flake. I changed my mind a lot, but I was always professional and how I treated other people. I, I always made it my best to do right by people. So if I ever got bored at a job, I, I gave myself the freedom to change jobs or to change careers, to pursue different things. But I always handle the process of leaving in the same way I would want people to handle it if the shoe were on the other foot. And as a result of that, I've been able to go back 
to every job I've left and, and gain some sort of benefit from leaving in a way that was classy. So even though I left American the, Express- The Papado story you told me that, you know, you were there and you even told them this because you wanted to go to Hollywood, but they threw you this huge party, which means that you obviously weren't there like, look, I'm only here for a few months. I'm mentally checked out. You obviously were all in and working hard enough to become a beloved employee. And even when Paige said, you got to come down here now, you still put in your two weeks. You still did that, right? You you didn't- Absolutely. You, you, you had, cause it's the thing that's easy to do is to say this, okay, I'm realizing this isn't the job I love. So the cowardly thing is, so I'll just sort of stop like going the extra mile and working hard and kind of slacking off the courageous yeah, I'm, thing I'm not inspired to say, today. Yeah, I'm not going to show the up. The courageous thing is to say, okay, I'm going to quit. I'm going to put in my two weeks. I'm going to work my best. Cause I never want to be doing something where I'm not working all the way. And it's so much better to say, this is going to start to make me feel dead inside and or whatever. I'm 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 gonna be tempted to not go all the way and put in all the work. It's so much better to keep going all the way and just make a change than it is to say, well, I can justify not working hard because it's not really something that I love, you know? Oh, absolutely, man. You know, uh, two years after I left American Express, I had to go back there in order to uh, get some paperwork and some verification for my licensing and training. And I walked in that place with no shame. And I was able to smile, look everybody in the eye, talk to them, and go straight to the guy who had what I needed. And he was fully cooperative, fully cool. I never knew that I would have to go back. But when I left, I left in a way that allowed me to go back. And I think that's a, a, a really valuable thing. And I, I'll say this too. I, I, will, I will give one boasting point. Every job I've ever left, somebody has cried as a result of me leaving. And me too. I, 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 I've, I always, that, <laughs> I've always taken pride in that. Yeah. And, and that, that really does give you strength for the next step. You know, it, it shows that you made a difference in people's lives. When Before I left Papado, during that, that last two weeks, I had a lot of regulars who would come to the restaurant just for me. And I told them that, you know, I had put in my two weeks and I was going to be moving to California. And they asked me why. I had multiple tables ask me for my autograph. They're like, I know you're going to do it, man. You're going to be famous. You're going to be in the movies. And they asked me for my autograph. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me when I would have dark days or tough moments trying to get where I was trying to go, thinking back to those moments where people believed in me enough to ask for an autograph. You know what I mean? Um, so it, you know, w when you do right by people over the long haul, other people do right by you and you gain from it. You, you've got the freedom to change your mind. You've got the freedom to opt out of things that aren't working for you. But Treat people like you want to be treated and, and always be professional. I think that's one of the most important lessons I've learned. Changing your mind and being honest with yourself isn't the same thing as being a flake. Yeah. If you're going to opt out, don't opt out mentally, actually physically opt out and say, okay, don't just check out, you know, because um, yeah. you're, you're better than that. So final question, TK, are you someday still going to hoist that Academy Award up onto stage or is that uh, has that morphed into was that an expression of something you wanted that you didn't know how to define and now that goal would be defined as something else? And if so, what would it be defined as if not hoisting a, an Academy Award? In the words of former MVP Derek Rose, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> hey man, you know, so <laughs> are we the best team? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. 
<laughs> like, inspires confidence like that. <laughs> right. Like you're supposed to be a leader here. Wasn't that um, after he said, people are saying we're a dream team, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> hey, people say I'm going to win an Academy Award. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who knows, man? I might. I might. <laughs> you, you know, it's something that I haven't really focused on a long time, but let me, let me tell you what that, what that dream meant for me. Um, that dream was born from a day in high school drama class where my high school drama teacher who had a huge impact on my life, Mrs. White, told the story of how Tom Hanks won an Academy Award and, and he thanked his, his high school teacher. And, and, and you could tell as she told that story, you could see the look in her eyes that that, that was something that she thought was super cool. And she kind of had that look in her eyes of, wouldn't it be nice if, 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 if somebody could do that for me someday? And I made up my mind right there. I was like, I'm going to do that for you, Mrs. White. I got your back. I got you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and get that Oscar. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> it's so terrible, man, because I have these dramatic moments and dramatic dreams. And it's like, dude, how could you not come through, right? Hey, but like, you can always go back and reinterpret them as part of the broader narrative. That's the great part. You just rewrite it. Part of the broader narrative. But, you know, it, it was really about having a desire, man, to to go away from my hometown and do something that that has a positive impact on the world and that gives the people who invested in me a reason to be proud. And, and I think that I'm doing that Academy Award or not. But man, I'll tell you what, I'm such a dreamer. I'm such a, uh, I'm such a, you know, give the status quo and give the concept of impossibility a middle finger. I'm going to say, who knows, man, life is long, life is tricky. And looking back on my past, there have been some crazy things that have happened. Man, one of these days you might look up and you might see me on TV. And you might see me holding an Oscar in my hand. Why not? When Michael Jordan gave his his Hall of Fame speech, he said, maybe one day when I'm 60, I'll take the court again. And people laughed. He says, don't laugh. because No, I don't think he was joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he said, don't laugh. Because fears, just like impossibilities, are often just an illusion. So who knows, man? The jury's still out. I'm not saying no, that, I, that you won't see me on TV and that I won't get an Oscar. I love it. TK, this has been... Uh, of all the conversations we've had, this has been one of my personal favorite, even though I already knew many of the points in the story, just to, to draw it out and hear you, you know, walk through the whole arc. Uh, absolutely loved it. Had a blast. Thanks again for coming on. Hey man, this was great. Thanks for having me, bro.